Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Last Friday was the centenary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. My guest on this episode, Joyce Tildesley, is an archaeologist at the University of Manchester with a lifelong obsession with that famous pharaoh. She's the author of a new book about his life, death and afterlife. It's called Tutankhamun, Pharaoh icon enigma. I sat down with her last week to find out more. Joyce, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us how you became interested in Tutankhamun and your journey to becoming an Egyptologist. I think, well, the two are very closely connected. I think what influenced me very strongly was when I was quite young in 1972, a long time ago now, there was the touring Tutankhamun exhibition that came to Britain and it was held at the British Museum. And I didn't live in London. I live in the northwest of England, as people can probably tell. But it was such considered to be such an amazing thing to happen that Tutankhamun, and he wasn't there, but his, his grave goods were there, it's considered to be such an amazing exhibition that my school decided that the whole lot of us would go down to London and have a look at it. But unfortunately, we couldn't go down. We had to charter a train and we couldn't go down on the days that schools got priority admittance. So the entire school went down, but we had to buy the tickets when we got there. And in fact, we queued for ages. We bought the tickets and then we didn't get in to see it because we realised that our train would be going back home again (laughs) while we're in the exhibition. But in a way, that didn't matter because, first of all, I'd been to London kind of by myself without the parents, which was really cool. And also, there'd been so much background stuff, books, some brilliant television programmes I remember. I mean, I was 12 at the time. Maybe they weren't as good as I remember them, but they probably were. And some beautiful photographs. It really inspired me. And added to that, I'm sorry, it's a really long answer. I, because I live in the northwest of England, we have a lot of really significant Egyptology collections around us here. Because Egypt and Britain, the northwest of England in particular, were linked by the cotton trade because we damp from the Pennines. We do a lot of textile work in the Northwest, or we did do. And um, following the American Civil War, we imported cotton from Egypt 
rather than from anywhere else. So the cotton magnets, the people who were making a lot of money, developed links with Egypt and they started to bring things back. And eventually they worked their way into the local museum. So it's two things. It's the direct Tutankhamun influence, plus the background of being really used to having Egyptology collections around me. So that when I was young, I just thought this was completely normal. I thought every museum had a, a massive Egyptology collection. And it's only when you get older, you start to realise this actually isn't normal. Why is this? Anyway, that's it. Have you now finally, as an adult, seen his grave goods in person? I have, yes. Yes, thank you. And I wasn't disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) How many years did it take? (laughs) Oh, um, I first went to Egypt, I think I was 20, so... Oh, okay. Only eight years. years. Only eight years, actually. That's That's not too long. Those of us who are not Egyptologists might imagine the history of ancient Egypt was static and coherent, but of course it wasn't at all. Can you situate Tutankhamun in the bigger sweep of his nation's history? Okay. Ancient Egypt, um, the dynastic period, which is what people tend to think about when they say ancient Egypt. So the time that Egypt was ruled by a pharaoh lasts for about 3,000 years. So it's a really, really long period of time. And he, it starts in about 3,000 BCE and it ends with the death of Cleopatra. In, in 30 BCE. And, and to get it sort of into perspective, Cleopatra is closer to our time than she is to the building of the pyramids. So it really is a long period of time and it's a long way remote for us. Tutankhamun is in what we now call the New Kingdom, the 18th dynasty, but he wouldn't have known that. These are modern terms that we've implied to Egyptian history. And he rules from about 1336 BCE. And he rules for about 10 years. It's not a long reign. But it's a time of empire. Egypt has been dominated the Mediterranean world. Egypt is a wealthy place. And certainly if we read the Egyptians' propaganda, the the messages they've left for us on their monuments, it's the best place in the world to be. And he is the the most wealthy, the most important king in the world. Because his world, of course, is a lot smaller than our world. But, you know, he knows that he's the best. Right. Why do you think he's such an object of fascination given that historically he was not one of the more important rulers? Oh, it, it's several things. It's, it's, it has to be mainly from the tomb because the discovery of the tomb, and it happened at a time when the whole world was depressed, I would say. There'd been the Great War, there'd been the influenza pandemic that, that followed that, and we can all understand now how devastating that could be. And then Tutankhamun's tomb is discovered and it's a sort of the ultimate treasure adventure. If we don't think about it too deeply, you know, it's a, t- it's a tale of daring that people go and find this tomb and there's a young king lying there surrounded by golden artefacts and it's absolutely fascinating. The greater, the better communications we had at that time meant that people could read about this pretty much as it was happening. So people felt quite connected to it. At the same time, there was a developing interest in the West in, well, I suppose, alternative religions, different ways of thinking, because a lot of the old certainties are gone. You know, in the past, people knew what would happen after death. People had very strong Christian connections. People were now sort of seeking alternative explanations. They had things like electricity and aeroplanes, which which they hadn't had before. They weren't, they weren't, I mean, this is 1922, so they weren't immediately new. But everything, the world was a changing place. And Egypt was seen as a place that might well hold some sort of esoteric knowledge that might actually help people in the future. A lot of people had lost loved ones, either through the pandemic or through the war. And there was an interest in trying to contact them. And this, again, seemed to connect to ancient Egypt. There was also, at the same time, 
the beautiful bust of Nefertiti was put on display in Berlin Museum and that again sparked an interest in this period. It fits very nicely into the sort of art deco style that is emerging at this time. So it's a combination of all these things. Whereas in Egypt itself, for the Egyptian people, the emergence of a, an Egyptian king who'd been pretty much forgotten at a time when nationalism is increasing is also a really important thing. And it sparks not only a, a, a renewed pride in Egypt, but also sort of considerations of why are foreigners coming to Egypt and excavating our kings. So it's a whole host of things all combined. But I would say the timing of it in particular is what really made the difference because we have later other kings are found, not in the Valley of the Kings, but in northern Egypt, but they're found during the war, the Second World War, and they don't get anything like the same attention as Tutankhamun does. Oh, just on the subject of timing, the Egyptians were extremely good at accurate timekeeping. Yes. And Egyptologists still use the ancient system to refer to dates. So can you tell yes. us when did Tutankhamun rule in their way of seeing things and in our way of seeing things? Well, in our way of seeing things, he rules from 1336 to 1327 BCE. In their way of saying things, they, wouldn't, they didn't see time as linear. They saw it as a continuing series of cycles. So he came to the throne in year one, and then he would have year two, year three, year four, year five. So it would be year one of Tutankhamun, year two of Tutankhamun. And this is how he dated things. So, for example, in his tomb, we have his wine jars, and they dated to year four five year six and so on up to, there's actually a wine jar dated up to year 10 which we used to to date his reign but he wouldn't have a continuing line of dates because to to the egyptians each reign was a new beginning and yet at the same time it was a continuation of what had gone before so if you were a pharaoh of egypt you were both all all the previous pharaohs and at the same time a new beginning but it's very logical if, if you think of it as a whole series i always think of it as a whole series of circles following on from one another and it makes a lot of sense, but it means for us to use their dating system, it's very accurate to say Tutankhamun year 10, because we know exactly what that means. But to tie that into our modern calendar is more difficult. We have to have a whole list of kings and we have to know exactly how they reigned. And we have a few gaps in our knowledge. So you'll find if you ever read books about ancient Egypt, people will give very, very slightly different dates for the same events. So a book might give slightly different dates for Tutankhamun. It'll still be the same reign length but it might not start in 1336, it might start in 1337. And we get kind of used to this as Egyptologists. The effect of it, though, is because we tend to refer to reign lengths and, and kingdoms and dynasties, it makes us look like we're excluding other people because we're not putting proper calendar dates onto things. And we're not doing it to exclude other people at all. It's just because, from our point of view, it's the most accurate way of doing it. I hope that makes sense. It's quite complicated, but I, I, the idea of time is so interesting and this, this continuing cycles, I think. Two older members of his family have fascinated historians almost as much as him, and they're Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Can you tell us about this power couple and what made uh, them extraordinary? Yes, yes. We know quite a bit about Akhenaten and much, much less about Nefertiti. So we'll start with him. He was a pharaoh preceding Tutankhamun. There may have been a pharaoh between the two, but if there was, it's short-lived. Basically, it goes from Akhenaten to Tutankhamun. And Akhenaten is very different to any other pharaoh of Egypt because he inherits the throne. We know that he's in line to the succession. He's not an outsider who just pops up and takes the throne. But most, well, all Egyptian pharaohs are expected to respect all of Egyptians' religious cults, and there are many of them. They're the head theoretically, of all the cults in Egypt. Now, they can't do all the offerings to every god because 
that that would be way too much. So they have a priesthood for each cult that works for them. But essentially, they are expected to respect all the gods. And if they do that, the gods in turn will make sure that Egypt flourishes. So it's important that the king respects the gods. It's not just an academic thing or I don't want to say not just a religious thing, but it actually has a very serious consequence. If you don't respect the gods, they won't respect you. And goodness knows what will happen. It could be disaster. Anyway, Akhenaten comes along and he changes all this because he pretty much devotes himself to one god called the Arten. And the Arten is a disc. It's a solar disc that we see it in art in the sky. It's not got a face. It's not got a body. It has got long, thin rays that, that come out from the disc. And these rays have little hands on them. And the hands hold out the ankh of life to the royal family. It's a very different concept of a god. All the other gods are pushed into the background and some are actively persecuted. And suddenly, Egypt has gone from a tradition of, of worshipping many state gods to worshipping basically one. And the king, who should be liaising with all the gods, has decided to deny their existence and will only liaise with one of them. So obviously this is a huge shock for Egypt. It's very, very different to what is seen before. Akhenaten takes the court and moves it from the traditional bases of Memphis in the north and Thebes in the south, Luxor today, and moves it to a place called Amarna, a new city that he builds to worship his newish god. And we call it the Amarna Age, this period when everything is different. So that's Akhenaten. It's what he's famous for. He's quite often called a heretic king, but he's not actually a heretic because there are no Egyptian books of, of behaviour. There's no equivalent of the Bible. So you were free to be quite idiosyncratic in your worship, but as Pharaoh, you should worship everybody, every god. So he's not particularly a heretic, but he's almost a monotheist. Not quite, but, but that's the way he's going. And Tutankhamun was brought up at that court, actually. He was brought up worshipping the Arten too, and it's during his reign it comes back. So that is Akhenaten. That's, that's what he's famous for. And he rules from his new city of Amarna for 17 years. He dies in year 17, again dated to his regnal, <laughs> regnal years. We know that his queen consort is Nefertiti. And the queen consort is really important because she's not just his wife. In fact, she's not his only wife. They have lots of wives. But she is the chief wife. She is the wife who will be shown in informal art and who will be mentioned in inscriptions. And her children are essentially the nuclear royal family. They will inherit the throne. Her sons will inherit the throne. Her daughters will marry the sons. A very important grouping. The thing is with Nefertiti, we know that she had six daughters. We don't know if she had any sons. But it's not as straightforward as, as being able to say, so she didn't have any. We can see her daughters in the arts. We don't see her sons. They're not mentioned. But we also know that at this time, royal sons aren't mentioned. So it could well be that she did have sons and it could well be that she is Tutankhamun's mother. We can't say that she isn't. We All we can say is that there is no evidence that she is. And because Akhenaten has other wives, it could be one of those other wives could also be Tutankhamun's mother. I think we have to accept because we know that Tutankhamun came to the throne at eight years of age. He's born into the royal family. He's not taken it by force or anything. But whether Nefertiti is his mother is unclear. It seems very likely that Akhenaten is his father or as an outside possibility, his brother or his grandfather. Beyond that, we don't know much about Nefertiti. It used to be thought that she kind of disappeared from her husband's reign around about his year 12. And people have made suggestions that maybe she didn't so much disappear or die as evolve into a co-regent or change her name and do something spectacular. But we now know that there's evidence for her still being his consort 
right up to year 16. So what happens to her after that, we don't know. When Akhenaten dies, we can't really see Nefertiti again. And again, this is not surprising. This is what happens. If a queen consort doesn't have a son that succeeds to the throne, she, she disappears into the background. A lot of people believe that Nefertiti may be ruled Egypt under a separate name, a different name, but we have no real proof of this. Personally, I don't believe it, purely because there's no evidence that she is born royal. So I think that her daughters, if there was a need for a woman to rule Egypt at this point, and there may well have been, because if Tutankhamun was too young to take the throne, he would have needed guidance. I think one of Nefertiti's daughters who were born royal were more likely to fulfil that role than Nefertiti herself. But there's lots. If you ask the same question to different Egyptologists, they would give you very different answers. Some people believe that she ruled as a, as a female king. Some people rule, believe that she was a co-ruler with Akhenaten. And, and some people like me believe that she didn't. I'm sorry, that's a really long and confusing answer, but it, it, it's such a good question. The challenges here reflect wider problems in Egyptology, right? Like it's difficult to build enough of an evidence base to prove very much. It It, it is sometimes and other times it's not. I mean, you call them problems and, and yes, they are. We can't write the definitive history. And, and some people I know, some people like a very clear cut history and, and get annoyed because we won't say what happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But for, for people like me, it's, it's one of the intriguing and fascinating aspects of Egyptology that we can all look at the evidence, we can all read up about it and then come to slightly different conclusions and build a case to support our arguments. And to me... People who like detective stories tend to like ancient Egypt because it's the same thing. We're still detecting the past and trying to work out what happened. What can you tell us about Tutankhamun's early life and how he was raised and educated? He would have been born at Amarna, I think, because although we're not directly told that, the court was there. And if he was close to the succession, which he must have been, um, it's unlikely to have been born anywhere else. But we don't really see him till pretty much the point where he comes to the throne. And again, this isn't sinister or unusual. It's the, it's the idea that royal sons are not prominent in their father's reign, whereas royal daughters are. Daughters seem to have a kind of protective function and they appear in art alongside their mothers and fathers. Sons don't. But we can tell that, well, we know that he had a nurse, possibly a wet nurse or, or maybe just a nurse who raised him. We know that he had various tutors because this is what happened. He would have been brought up, I think, as a prince who potentially would inherit the throne, but it would be only at the point where his father decided who the succession would be that he would know definitely that he would be the one to inherit the throne. And from that point onwards, I think his life would have changed and then he would have been sort of the next in, in waiting for for the, the position. And, and from this point onwards, he then becomes more prominent in affairs. But it, it's, it's strange because Amarna City has survived really well. Um, we can see a lot of it because it was never built over. So we have a lot of information about the city itself, how it was geographically structured. We can see that it ran alongside the river, that it had tombs, that it had a royal road where people processed. And yet the actual lives of the royal family are far harder to detect, and particularly Tutankhamun. He's just kind of invisible there. When he became a pharaoh, he went from being a boy to being a semi-divine being. Can you tell us about yes. that? Yes. Um, technically, if you were the pharaoh... You were, mort you were born mortal and then on your coronation it would change you and you would be able then to communicate with the gods. Traditionally, all the gods, or if you're Akhenaten, just the one god that, that existed or that he thought mattered. And that made you very different to everyone else because you were kind of a conduit between the people and the gods. So 
everything went through you and it made you a very vital person. It's not surprising the Egyptians never really tried to overthrow the kings and replace the system with a democracy because they, they believed that the king was absolutely vital to the survival of Egypt. And it would have just it would have just changed everything. Within a few years of him being crowned, the court moved from Amarna, the religion changed, and there's a whole change to the artwork as well. Akhenaten's art is very distinctive. It reflects his interest in the solar god. Tutankhamun goes far, far back in time to the traditional art of the previous pharaoh, and he tries to present himself as a very traditional pharaoh. I mean, we have to men- remember that he was probably about 10 years old at this time, and he's got no memory of the previous pharaohs because Akhenaten was on the throne for 17 years. So obviously he's been guided in this, but he doesn't try and change it. I mean, he dies when he's about 17 or 18, old enough to have, had he wanted to revert back to the religion of his childhood, the art and worship, he's old enough to have done that and he doesn't. He goes along with this changing back to the old ways, presumably because the Akhenaten's art and worship really didn't work. It was a religion that was very important to him, but it was all based on him and the royal family and it didn't offer anything to anybody else, particularly the elite, the courtiers who surrounded him. He got rid of, for example, the god Osiris, who was in charge of the afterlife. So this meant that his courtiers didn't have an afterlife to look forward to. And the afterlife is quite important to the ancient Egyptians. They want to to live again in a land very similar to Egypt. He just wiped that away because the Aten doesn't have this afterlife for them. So you can see why bringing the traditional way of thinking, the traditional religion back Offering something to the people was a very astute move for Tutankhamun or for whoever was advising him. He also strengthened Egypt's power in the eastern Mediterranean, which had been in decline. Yes, he started to anyway. It's difficult to see how far he got with that. And certainly the kings who came after him, not the immediate king after he he had quite a short reign, but Horemheb who came after that, had to continue this. And then the Ramesai kings who come, come afterwards also have to continue this. But... It's clear that during Akhenaten's reign again, he was very inward facing. He was very focused on Egypt and Amarna and his own city. And he wasn't that concerned about what was happening in his wider empire. So things fell apart a bit and it had to be put back together again. I mean, still Egypt was the dominant nation. Still Egypt thought that they were boss of the world, but but things were falling apart. And Tutankhamun was starting to strengthen that. And I think that had he lived, because he seems to have died by accident... Had he lived to for another 20 or 30 years, which he could have done on the throne easily, it would have been very different. It's easy to see him in the position that Ramesses the Great will assume later, really just a leading a magnificent empire again. How did he die? <laughs> Good question. We don't know. We have to look at his body, which itself is actually quite interesting because when Howard Carter found the tomb, he assumed that Tutankhamun was an elderly man and it was only when he actually found the body that he realised that he was a young man and then he realised that he'd been a child king. Anyway, we, we look at the body, it's a young man and it's very badly battered. The problem is that when the tomb was opened, the body was autopsied and it wasn't autopsied, let's put it this way, well, we wouldn't do that today, we wouldn't unwrap him at all. But if we were to unwrap him, we certainly wouldn't do it in the, in the brutal way that it was done in those days. So there's damage to the body that's been caused after the mummification process. Having said that, it's clear that the body was also damaged before it was mummified. There's damage to the chest, there's damage to the leg and the heart is missing. I think this is quite an important clue because you would expect a king to be buried with their heart because they would probably need it in their afterlife. 
So the fact that it's missing suggests that it may have decayed before the mummification process occurred, which in turn suggests that maybe he died away from the embalmers, the embalming workshop. It's, it's just a clue, you know, maybe on a battlefield or a hunting field. The fact that his chest is very badly damaged, again, suggests something like a high-speed impact accident. It's been suggested that he may have died in battle, but we don't actually have any direct proof that he ever did fight anywhere. My own theory is that he died in a hunting accident, hunting ostriches in the desert, because young men in Egypt, and he was a young man, I mean, he's a, he's a pharaoh and all that, but that he, high-speed hunting in the desert was a, a thing that the elite did, chasing after, chasing after ostriches. And there's a, I, th- I like to think there's a bit of a clue, actually, in his burial chamber, because quite close to his body, a fan was left, the sort of big fan that a servant would waft over a pharaoh, and it would have a sort of ro- rounded top, which would have ostrich feathers coming off it. The feathers have decayed, but the inscription tells us there would have been alternating white and brown feathers on this fan. And the two scenes on what's left of the fan the sort of core of it, show Tutankhamun in his chariot going out to hunt and to coming back with ostriches that he's hunted. So I like to think that's kind of a clue that's been left by the undertakers to to tell us what happened. We wouldn't expect them to write it down or show his death because that would be extremely unlucky. It might mean that he had to keep reliving this death over and over again in the afterlife. But a little clue like that, at least it reminds us that he did high-speed activities and maybe maybe that's what caused his death. But other people have other theories. Again, it's another thing that we're not absolutely certain of. What kind of afterlife did he expect to go on to? Because he was a pharaoh, he had several options. He could be an undying star. He could become one with the god Osiris, who ruled the afterlife. He could work alongside the sun god Ray and sail in the boat that goes across the sky during the daytime. It's a solar boat. Then at night, it goes underground and fights off all the the demons that threaten to halt the sun, makes his way through there and then pops up again for for mourning the next day. And in fact, within Tutankhamun's burial chamber, it's the only decorated part of the tomb, we can see reflections of the Osiris myth and the the Ray solar boat type myth. They're two there. Probably some combination of all three, really. You know, they weren't mutually exclusive. He probably expected those. He had a very strong, strong spirit and would expect to go on that way. It's quite interesting because his his tomb is packed full of grave goods and we sort of think, oh, well, maybe he thought he would use these in the afterlife because that is why Egyptians do take goods to, to the tomb. But as a king, he wouldn't expect to need them because he would become one of the gods. So it's like it's almost like a belt and braces thing that he's taking them just in case this fails. And also, I think there's an element of just pure storage because some of the stuff in his tomb is like clothes he wore when he was a child. We can see they're tiny and he wouldn't have been able to wear them as an adult. So maybe also the tomb holds all the things he had in his lifetime once he'd become king and they couldn't they couldn't be disposed of any other way. But it's interesting he, he even has servant figures who will work for him in the afterlife, Shabti figures. Many Egyptians have them, but as a king, he shouldn't need them because a king, he won't be working for anyone. He will be the god who's ordering the work. So it's very interesting to try and piece together exactly what he thought would happen with all these different clues again. Let's jump forward uh, a few thousand years to the discovery of the tomb. Can you sketch out how European powers came to be interested in and involved in Egyptian antiquities and the role of the Rosetta Stone in that? It's been going on for a long time. Basically, 
after the end of the dynastic age, and and Egypt undergoes several changes, it converts to Christianity, it converts to Islam, and the, the ancient language is lost, and no one can read the hieroglyphs. So the ancient history is lost, and nobody quite understands how old Egyptian civilization, how how old the, the dynastic age has been. So we we tend to think, particularly in the West, that it's much more compressed, that it's a shorter period of time than it actually was. But the only evidence we have for this is coming from the Bible, where Egypt is mentioned, and the classical authors, who provide some descriptions of Egypt towards the end of the dynastic period, but certainly don't give a full history of Egypt. So there's a, a real lack of understanding. Arab writers have a better understanding in many ways but their work isn't published in in the West in a form that people can read it. So people are relying on the Bible to understand ancient Egypt and they're relying on writers like Herodotus. When Egypt opens up and people start travelling to Egypt, they start seeing extraordinary monuments, but they're monuments that have no context, essentially. So people want to collect these and a trade develops, people people acquiring these and taking them to the West. They, they've done this in consultation with the, the rulers of Egypt who aren't the Egyptian people at this time. So they, they take them to Egypt, from Egypt, they bring them to the West and they put them in museums, but they're not regarded as historical artefacts as such. They're regarded as curiosities. And there's a general thing, feeling that Egypt is a bit of a cultural dead end, that, that Western civilization springs from Greece and Rome. But Egypt, it all looks the same, so it hasn't evolved. Of course, that's that's completely wrong. It doesn't all look the same. Superficially, it does. But the more you look at Egyptian art, the more you can see how fantastic and how how sophisticated it is. And of course, the, the more you, you look at the whole situation, you can see that Greek and Roman art is influenced by Egypt. So it's all wrong. But anyway, we have this idea, in, particularly in, in the West, that Egypt is almost, it's a curiosity. It's an odd place. Mummies are curiosities, but actually none of this is of any real value. With the deciphering of the Rosetta Stone, suddenly it becomes possible to understand what's been going on. We can read the text, we can piece together Egyptian history, realise how really long it is, and suddenly the artefacts that we have acquire a great interest. But by this time, Egyptology, people are already fascinated by it. They've been they've been visiting museums to see the artefacts, they've been reading mummy stories are popular, they've been reading about it. People start going there on holiday because Egypt is a healthy place. So we have Thomas Cook sending people down the Nile on boats and things. So suddenly Egypt becomes far more familiar than than it has been. And the idea that people could find the pharaohs and connect together Egyptian history in this way is one that really takes hold. So you get teams of of non-Egyptian workers working in Egypt to find excavators, working in Egypt to, to find these hidden treasures and take them back home. Obviously, this doesn't happen today, but at the time it was considered quite acceptable that if you turned up and you found things, half of them could be yours and you would take them away. And you would use those to actually pay for your excavation. You would distribute them amongst your sponsors who would give you more money for the next year. It was, well, it was thoughtless. Let's put it that way. At the, the very least, it was thoughtless. We we wouldn't behave that. I like to think we wouldn't behave that way today. But, yeah, that's how it was. We, we can't really hide it. At the time, uh, Howard Carter was not seen as the discoverer of the tomb. To whom did that credit belong? Yes, the, the, the sponsor of the mission was Lord Carnarvon. He'd gone to Egypt because he'd had a car crash and he wasn't particularly well. And he went to Egypt for his health. 
and then again got interested in, in excavation and because he wasn't a skilled excavator, he was teamed up with Howard Carter. So Carter would bring the expertise and he would he would bring the money, basically. So it was very much seen as, as his as his excavation. Carter was the person who organised the, the dig, who organised the workers and so on. But he, he didn't have the social clout that, that, that Lord Carnarvon did. So when, it, when the discovery was made, it was very much Lord Carnarvon's discovery. But unfortunately, Lord Carnarvon died not long afterwards. And Howard Carter was put in the position of, of leading the dig. It was essentially inherited by Lady Carnarvon and she continued to fund it with, with Howard Carter in place. But that possibly... Um, he wasn't a great politician, Howard Carter. He was slightly outside his comfort zone here. And he didn't get on particularly well with the antiquity service who were in charge of the tomb. So it all slightly deteriorated from that point. The highlight you know, was, was definitely with the two of them standing at the tomb door and, and looking at the wonderful things that they saw and, and looking ahead to what, partic- what might be in the tomb. Even at the time, people were questioning the right of a foreign interloper to rip a young man out of his grave. And local Egyptologists were furious about their exclusion from the archaeological event of a lifetime. Absolutely, absolutely. How did this conflict resolve? <laughs> well, it, it came about because Lord Carnarvon had sold the rights to the tomb to the Times of London, which meant you could only read what was happening in the tomb by reading the Times. And, of course, for the Egyptians themselves, the Egyptian archaeologists and journalists, to, to have to read about what was happening in their own country by reading a foreign newspaper was just, just not on. And it it led to all sorts of conflicts between the excavators and the Egyptian press, at the same time we have the Western press have also gone out there and they also want to have a right to it because they see it not as an Egyptian discovery particularly, but as a worldwide discovery of, of international importance. So they also object to being outside the tomb. And so there's a great deal of resentment as every day the, the select few go into the tomb and, and do the excavation work and outside watching, you've got these, all these journalists trying to get a story, being misled sometimes the workers would come out and mislead them as to what had been found in the tomb, scrapping around for any sort of story that they could publish. When Lord Carnarvon dies, that is a story that can be published. So suddenly the Western press focus on that, but they don't interview the archaeologists to talk about this. They interview what we'd consider to be more fringe people, people like the novelist Marie Corelli, and they interview people like Arthur Conan Doyle, to get their views on it. And Arthur Conan Doyle, great writer of, of Sherlock, but also believes in fairies and elementals. So we then get the development of the curse theory connected to this. And this is something that everyone can publish. So it gets far more publicity than it probably would have done under other circumstances. And again, this then contributes to Tutankhamun's current um, fame and popularity. Where are Tutankhamun's body and relics now? His body is in his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. A oh, good question, where, where are his grave goods? They were in, in the Egyptian Museum, but the Egyptian Museum is being moved. They built, they're building a fantastic new museum by the pyramids, and I, I believe that's where they will eventually be. I think some of them have already transferred across, and they'll be well displayed. I mean, they were, they were displayed before, but it, it's brand new state-of-the-art museum. The world's just waiting to see what it'll be like inside. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and telling us this fantastic story. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been brilliant. This episode starred Joyce Tilsley and was produced and presented by me. Our editor is John Doughty and the series is co-produced by Esme Bright. 
with help from Nicole Wong. Joyce's new book, Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, is out now. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>